Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Timothy Booker on revival, what it is, and accounts of it past and present. Revival is when God moves in a community of believers. That community could be two people in a marriage, it could be a family, could be a small group, could be a church family. It could be a college campus as we're seeing take place uh, today. Timothy Booker, next. Dr. Timothy Booker has been studying the remarkable and inspiring subject of revival for more than 40 years. He's co-author, along with Lyle Dorset, of Accounts of a Campus Revival, Wheaton College, 1995, and he recently visited Asbury University and will describe what he experienced there. Stay with us to learn about these amazing works of God. Dr. Booker is Associate Dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism, and Ministry and the Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism and Church Growth at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Booker, what is revival and why have you been studying it for more than 40 years? You think about the term revival, I'm convinced you could put 100 people in a room and ask them to define it and probably get 200 different (laughs) definitions. It's been used in a variety of different ways. Uh, I like to separate three distinct things, three, three things that I think we can observe. And so I use the terms renewal, revival, and spiritual awakening, not synonymously, as many people do but to uh, highlight three distinct things. So just briefly, I use renewal when God works in the heart of a single believer. That's something that can and should happen every day. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we place ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice. Our mind is renewed through the Word of God. It's the old adage, if you're not as close to God today as you were yesterday, guess who moved? So yep. uh, renewal is something every believer can and should experience every single day. Revival is when God moves in a community of believers. That community could be two people in a marriage. It could be a family. could be a small group. could be a church family. It could be a college campus, as we're seeing take place uh, today. And then I use the term spiritual awakening when that spills out into the broader culture. Uh easy way to remember that. If a revival happens, everybody in church will know it. If a an awakening happens, everybody in the community will know it. Mm. And that's why we look at events like what we call the first great awakening. That impacted society and culture. So one of the great mysteries, I have been studying this topic for over four decades, why does not every revival become an awakening? Yeah. Some do, some don't. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's it's in the mystery of God. It's in God's providence and sovereignty. But there are some movements that I think we can say are a genuine revival, God visiting his people, restoring them to that close relationship with him that seemingly don't spill over into the broader culture. And yet I would still argue they were a genuine revival. Now, now, in terms of a of a revival, uh, and as you said, revivals, if there are awakenings, revivals spill out into the general culture. That becomes a spiritual awakening. Uh, are revivals uh, simply sovereign moves of God? In other words, He chooses when to bring about that revival uh, of faith in Him, whether in a in a in a couple in a church. Yes, I I believe they are. I I think G. Campbell Morgan uh, summarized it very well. He said, we cannot organize revival. 
but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow again upon his people. Uh, now, in my own tradition, Southern Baptists, uh, we have a tradition in many churches of having a fall and a spring revival. Mm -hmm. Those are typically evangelistic meetings, which I am all for. I serve as the Billy Graham professor of evangelism. I love to preach the gospel. But using the term revival to mean a, a week-long evangelistic meeting could lead to sort of the oxymoronic statement, we had a revival, but no one was revived. <laughs> you, you, you didn't have a revival, you had a, a week of meetings. But I think there's great confusion because many people use the term revival to mean a planned meeting. As you just indicated, I, I believe revival is when God, uh, for reasons known only to him at that particular time and place, chooses to display his manifest presence in a way that he was not immediately before that. Well, you made reference to the phrase genuine revival. So what do you believe are the signs of a true or a genuine revival? What could tip us off that, okay, this is what yep. we're experiencing? Yeah, I, I think we get great help uh, in that regard from Jonathan Edwards, the, the great historian of revival in New England. Uh, Jonathan Edwards had to deal with something in the First Great Awakening that that no one wants to have to deal with, and that is having to fight a battle on two fronts. You, you never want to have to do that. Edwards had to fight against the rationalists, Charles Chauncey and others, who said, because there's emotion involved in this, this isn't reasonable. Uh, in fact, the book that Chauncey wrote, some reasonable thoughts on, on religion in New England. And so he said, all this emotion discredits it. A, a real work of God is done decently and in order. Then on the other hand, you had sort of fanatics like James Davenport, who just tried to whip people up into emotional frenzy. And so Edwards wrote a book in 1741 called Distinguishing Marks of the Work of a Spirit of God. He began that book by saying, emotion in and of itself doesn't tell us anything. The fact that emotion is present doesn't mean that it is of God. It doesn't mean that it isn't. So how do we know if something is really a, a work of the Spirit of God? Edwards said there were five distinguishing marks, and he based these from an exegetical study in the book of First John. And, and what are those five marks? Yeah, the, the first mark was it raises the esteem of Jesus. In other words, when the Spirit of God is at work, as Jesus himself said in, in John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will bear witness of me. The job of the Holy Spirit is like the spotlight operator at the play. When the main character comes out on stage, the spotlight operator shines the spotlight on Jesus. We, we would think it very strange if that spotlight operator turned the spotlight around and drew attention to himself. In a time of revival, Edwards says Jesus Christ is lifted up. He's in the spotlight. He's the focus. He's what people are talking about. That, that's the first mark. The second mark is that Satan's kingdom suffers. There's not simply acknowledgement of sin. There's not even simply confession of sin. There's repentance. People see the horrors of sin. They see the holiness of God, the awfulness of sin, and they want to get all the sin out of their life they can. They want to get as far away from it uh, as they can. So Satan's kingdom suffers. Uh, third, Edward said there'll be a greater response to Scripture, a greater respect for Scripture. 
And if we think about it, that makes great sense because the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God is the one who's bringing revival. Of course, he would direct people to the Word of God. Fourth, people will be able to more clearly discern truth and error. First uh, John 4 talks about, you know, testing the spirits, and Edwards believed during a time of revival, truth and error comes into to sharp focus. Mm-hmm. And then the the fifth, which is rather subjective, a, a new sense of love towards God and man. I, I think people would, would acknowledge that. Edwards said that that's always a mark of genuine revival. So those five distinguishing marks, he said, if the Spirit of God is at work, you're going to see these five things. And conversely, if perhaps there's a question mark over what's going on, well, Edwards addressed that as well, and he used a very helpful phrase, a, a phrase that I've been using a lot over these past two weeks. It's the phrase, in the main, M-A-I-N, mm. in the main. What, what's at the heart? What's at the center? Edwards said, on the fringes, on the periphery of revival, there's always going to be excess. There's always going to be weird stuff going on. Why? First, because you have some very zealous and yet immature and not yet sanctified believers who say and do stupid things. Mm. And second, because of satanic opposition. So Edwards would say, don't don't look at the fringes. If you look out there, you can expect to see things that don't meet these marks that that are crazy. Uh, that going on. Mm -hmm. That excess, Edwards said, doesn't disprove the movement. Look at it in the main. What's going on at the heart of the movement? Well, my guest today on His People is Dr. Timothy Booker, and he is Associate Dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism and Ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the Billy Graham Professor of Evangelism and Church Growth. And uh, Dr. Booker, you visited uh, Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, where uh, what has been called a revival has been going on now for uh, a number of weeks. Well, it's obviously been said that it is a revival. I'm wondering what are your, what you've been there, what are your observations, what have been your experiences uh, regarding what, what's happening there? Yeah, Bill, th- thanks for that question. And just a little more background on me. My, my background before I was called into ministry was engineering. Oh. Uh, if you had a, a scale of emotion from zero to 100, I'm low single digits. Okay, yeah. so people that don't know me, that that's a little bit of context. Okay. As an engineer, I probably approach things too skeptically. You have to do that as an engineer. If you're not skeptical, the bridge falls down. Uh, so, so that's a little bit of my makeup. I I don't think I'm gullible. I'm not hyper emotional, but. Uh, I experienced genuine revival on the campus of Wheaton College back in 1995, the manifest presence of God, where when the Holy Spirit moved in our midst, all of us there got on our knees or on our faces before God as he just showed us his holiness and, and we began to weep and confess our sin. When I walked into Asbury uh, last week, within 15 seconds, I was weeping. Uh, I'm not a weeper. I'm low single digits Mm -hmm. on the emotional scale, but just sensing again what I sensed at Wheaton, the manifest presence of God. People say, explain that to me. I I can't. Uh, But uh, I know the the presence of God there was so overpowering, and I think that's what's drawn a lot of people there. Some of them curiosity seekers, to be sure, but others— because they're tired of, of all the politics. They're tired of all the programs. They, they want to connect with God. 
Well, one thing that struck me uh, about uh, Asbury University or the, those in leadership there, at least this is what I've heard, that some have wanted to go there and just observe and report on what they saw as perhaps the news media. And they've I, I, they've been uh, kind of politely asked, well, well, don't come for that reason. We're not seeking publicity. Uh, absolutely. And the, the afternoon I was there and having had a little bit of context in, in 1995, I was one of four faculty and staff that were tasked with sort of shepherding what was going on there. So I know the the heavy weight of responsibility that is. How how do you balance freedom and order? Mm-hmm. How do you not try and turn the screws down and, and manage things so tight you don't allow the spirit to move, and yet you don't turn it into a free for all? And uh, as I sat there uh, last week, I thought the leaders of Asbury did a magnificent job of balancing that. I know that's subjective, but I, I just give kudos to them. I don't even know who these leaders were because they never even mentioned their names. Hmm. They they always said, this is just all about Jesus. There was no names were mentioned, but as someone would come up to give testimony they had a microphone on each side, and one of the leaders, the whoever that came up and said, this is what I'd like to share, uh, sometimes this leader told them, go sit back down. That, that's, that's, not, that's not what we need right now. Other times they invited them to share, but they also always held the microphone so that they could if, if there was something inappropriate. So I think finding that balance between freedom and order, that, that's, a, that's a difficult balance to obtain. I, I could just give kudos to the leadership at Asbury. I, at least the day that I was there, I thought they did a magnificent job. So you've explained a bit what you've experienced, just the sensing the presence of God. Um, and, and I'm assuming, of course, there was worship that took place. You mentioned testimonies. And I read somewhere that there were even periods where seemingly nothing was happening. It was quiet. There, there were periods of silence that, that would be broken by people weeping or sobbing uh, or crying out. Uh, I am not a shouter, either by temperament or tribe. That's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not my, my thing. Uh, there, there was deep, uh, solemn times of worship, deep deeply reflective there there were also celebrative times of worship with with shouting and clapping and you know all of that so it's sort of a mix across the board but uh this was also saturated with the bible you know some some of the critics and i've read a lot of the criticisms level against asbury well uh they're not having sermons there you know it's this is just all experience it's not based off the word again this has been going on for over two weeks now uh i was there one afternoon but the the time that i was there that afternoon there was not a sermon but it was scripture saturated people who shared shared a verse of scripture there were brief times of teaching there was teaching on dying to self and and then a specific time of prayer Let, let's just pause and ask god to help us die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ and others. Uh, that's that's a sermon in a nutshell, but it, you know it uh, uh, I, I find that very biblical. I, I'd mentioned to my church a couple of years ago just coincidentally that when I came to Christ in the 1970s, we heard a lot about dying to self. That, that was, you know, what, what is the Christian life? You die to self, you live for Christ and others. And I just mentioned, I could not remember the last time I heard an evangelical talk about the need to die to self. 
Well, I, I heard it last week at Asbury. It's a biblical theme, and, and it was emphasized, and there was an opportunity for all of us there to pray and ask God to, to bring that to fruition in our lives. Well, uh, Dr. Booker, thank you for uh, e- explaining and, and sharing your uh, experiences about Asbury. And uh, I don't know if this is a sign of a true sign of revival. I don't think it was in the list that you gave from Jonathan Edwards. But what are the indications that this revival if you will, it's happening at Asbury University is actually spreading. I, I've read accounts that it's spreading in numerous campuses uh, here in the U.S. and even other countries. It is. And, and again, back to Jonathan Edwards, he noted in the first Great Awakening, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically uh, revival is carried on the wings of testimony. People that have had received this special touch from God, share it with others. That that gives others hope that God could do that for them as well. People that have been hungering and praying for this see, oh, this, this is a sign of a work of God. So, again, critics will say, oh, these other schools are trying to manufacture, you know, what Asbury did. Could there be some of that? Of course. I mean, we we as human beings uh, have tried to manufacture something for a long time. But from what I've been able to see, at least uh, from some of these outbreaks at other schools, it was initiated by students at, at Samford University, for example. Uh, a student just wanted to worship the Lord. He slipped in the chapel and just began playing the piano and singing to the Lord. A couple other students were walking by, heard it, joined him. And before the night was over, there were 200 students, just uh, an impromptu praise mm-hmm. And celebration time that that wasn't scheduled. It wasn't on anyone's calendar. Uh, it didn't go out. You know, people saying come at such and such a time. It it was spontaneous. Is social media aiding this? In other words, is this a tool that maybe God is is using to spread it that we didn't have uh, before? This is the first of these revivals that have happened during the social media age. And so, yes, uh, social media, I, I posted something last week and uh, on Facebook had, had received over 5,000 shares mm-hmm. of, of that post uh, that throughout. Just, you know, th- this has absolutely exploded. And again, I think what that does is it brings encouragement to people. The the flip side of that is true as well. The the Charles Chaunceys of today also have social media to pour cold water over this, and they will pick out one particular thing. I, I saw a post today. Uh, there are some people that Asbury didn't invite who are now preaching out on the lawns of campus. Okay, Asbury didn't invite them, didn't welcome them. They're out there, and someone just took a clip, and what this person was saying said, see, this isn't biblical. This whole Asbury revival is a sham. Well, that, that'd be like someone coming uh, outside of my church this next Sunday and maybe sharing something false and people saying, oh, well, that proves that's a false church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it doesn't. This proves that there was some kook out on the grass sharing something that, that we in the church would not agree with or support. So social media has really worked both ways, but I think overall it's been positive. People have been able to see video clips of of what's going on and what this looks like and and be able to sense the the sincerity, be able to sense the joy, uh, the brokenness uh, in, in a way that simply was not possible in 1970, even in 1995. And you mentioned the 1995 revival on the campus of Wheaton College, which you experienced, which you have written about. 
going back a little further, uh, there's a movie out now, of course, some are familiar with it, Jesus Revolution, which is looking at the origins of what's become known as the Jesus movement, starting in the late 60s, uh, going into the 70s. Can you talk about that a little bit, and, and does that fit the definition of a revival slash spiritual awakening? Many argue that it does. I haven't seen the movie, or, or you know, I'm familiar with uh, the basic content. Uh, I think the late '60s, early '70s, there there was a revival, campus revival at Asbury in 1970 that spilled out to over a hundred different colleges and universities, many churches, and I, I think that again, one of these seasons where God just sovereignly is at work and and moving and was doing it in a time of great need for our nation, uh, a time of great civil unrest, riots, protests, bombings. Uh, uh, our country just seemed to be coming apart at the seams, and and God did this work among young people. Again, back to Jonathan Edwards. When he talked about the First Great Awakening, he said, it has been chiefly among the young. Hmm. Uh and, and we stop and say, OK, what, why is that? Well, yeah. I think one reason is, is that young people uh, aren't yet set in their ways. They're, they're more open to uh, the Spirit of God. Uh, it's like the difference between a new believer and an old believer. Dr. Howard Hendricks used to ask the question, what's the worst thing that can happen to a new believer? And his answer was to meet an old believer. You know, a new believer, they're so excited about the Lord, they just want to tell everybody about him. After we've been a Christian for a while, tragically, many times we lose the wonder of our salvation, and we we seem less excited about Christ and about evangelism than we were as a new believer. So uh, I think younger people tend to have more pliable hearts than than those of us that, uh, that maybe have experienced a, a hardening uh, of the heart over the years instead of keeping it tender and pliable. Well, you explained earlier, uh, early on, I should say, Dr. Booker, that uh, revival then uh, often spills out into spiritual awakening from the church uh, or, or Christian groups to the broader culture. And I think you either said or I've read that that's something you could expect typically from a true revival is effects in the culture. It's kind of a big question, but whether it's the, the Wheaton uh, revival, whether it's the, uh, the Asbury ones of the past, the Jesus movement, whether it's the first Great Awakening during the colonial era or sometime later the second Great Awakening, can you talk about what kinds of changes in the culture that a revival of the church may cause or contribute to? Yeah, uh, that very famously, when when they were talking about uh, revival in Wales, J. Edwin Orr talks about this, is that uh, among the mines there, the miners that were mining coal, that when they came under conviction and began to repent, they began bringing back tools that they had stolen uh, from the mine, and they they finally put up a sign: "Stop bringing them back. We don't have any space to store them." So you know, you begin to see genuine repentance uh, taking place. In, in the first Great Awakening, there were many schools that were founded uh, to train ministers for the gospel. Uh, schools that today are Brown University, uh, Dartmouth, and and others, uh, because there were so many young men who were saved and called to the ministry, there needed to be training centers. So. You know, as we know, the Ivy League schools were originally designed to train ministers for the gospel. John Harvard gave his family fortune and library to found Harvard College to train ministers for the gospel. So uh, education uh, was promoted, conversions, churches are renewed. 
And then particularly in the second great awakening, you, you see a lot of the, the social uh, aspects of this. Uh, that's what helped prompt uh, a move to end slavery. Uh, Timothy Smith has written a wonderful book, Revivalism and Social Reform, where he argues the Second Great Awakening is, is what brought all of these social changes as it did filter out into the broader culture. But one of the key marks for me is that revived believers become evangelistic believers. You know, part part of the reason we need to be revived is because we're not sharing the gospel. We're keeping that good news to ourselves, And so uh, I, I had the opportunity to speak at another school in the, in the days following the Wheaton revival. And uh, the dean there asked me to address the faculty. So I shared a little bit about it. And one of the faculty members who you could tell was a bit skeptical uh, said just like this, well, what effect has this revival had on the academic life of Wheaton College? And I said, sir, short term, it has been disastrous. I said, my last class period, half my students weren't in class. You know why they weren't in class? Because they had gone back home to reconcile with an estranged parent. They had gone back home to share the gospel with a friend they'd gone to high school with, and they'd never opened their mouth. And they came under such conviction that they needed to go back. So short term, it's been disastrous. But I think in the long term, we're going to be okay. Well, Dr. Bucher, I know I have to let you go shortly here, but I'm wondering, in terms of the scripture itself, can you touch on maybe a couple of prominent times where you see revival in the Old and or the New Testaments? Yeah, you, you certainly see it in the Old Testament. Uh, going back, I, I think you can argue revival under Moses in Exodus 32 and 33. And anytime the people stray away from God, and you find this three-word phrase over and over again in the Old Testament, and they forgot, mm. and they forgot. So particularly in Kings and Chronicles, you, you see revival under Asa, 2 Chronicles 14 through 16, revival under Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20, under Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29 through 30, under Josiah, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. I think you see those. The, the question is, what about in the New Testament? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones argues the reason we don't see in the New Testament is that the New Testament church largely functioned in the spirit of revival. Mm. As you look through the book of Acts, now later on you see there were problems, Corinth, Galatia, and, and others, but uh, the New Testament's a much shorter period of time, and, and really following Pentecost, it appears the early church was walking in the fullness of the Spirit uh, in the years that followed. Uh, Dr. Booger, for those uh, listening to this, how would you suggest uh, believers respond to, well, first of all, what, what they're hearing uh, about what's happening in uh, Kentucky at Asbury University, or, or really in terms of the hope of revival in general? Thanks, Bill. I, I would say two things. First of all, obviously, to pray. Uh, I, I've told people, regardless of what you think about these early reports coming out of Asbury, can cannot every believer agree we need a fresh touch from God? Uh, the church is in trouble. The nation is in trouble. We we desperately need a fresh touch from God. We, we ought to all be able to agree on that and therefore pray. Pray for God's protection. Pray for God's spirit to, to have his way. But at an individual level, I, I love the, the question that D.L. Moody was once asked. He says, how do you start a revival? Moody said, actually, it's really easy. 
you get a piece of chalk and you bend down on the floor and you draw a circle on the floor. Then you set aside the piece of chalk and you step inside that circle and say, dear God, start a revival inside this circle. You do not have to go to Wilmore, Kentucky and enter the chapel at Asbury University to experience the presence of God. The Lord himself tells us, when you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. So I encourage people just where they are. I've, I've known people that literally have gotten a physical piece of chalk. <laughs> if D.L. Moody said it, it's good enough for me and, and draw that circle on the floor. We we can do that figuratively as well, but, but just cry out, Lord, begin a revival inside this circle. Begin a revival in me. I shared with my church this past Sunday and define revival in this way. Revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. And all of us need that from time to time because we fall away from that close relationship and God in his grace revives us and restores us to that close relationship with him. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Timothy Booker, Associate Dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism and Ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Ian Carmichael with a biblical approach to busyness when it's good and when it's not. That all flows from being in God's image, both our the kind of mandate to work and to be active and busy in caring for God's world, but also in resting and enjoying our relationship with Him as our Creator. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.